0: But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting lig- ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you.
1: So, what a difference a week makes, Right? Okay, that died. All right. Um, (laughs) Last week was Easter. um, And a week later, much like the original disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, we might be wondering what happens next. Back in the beginning, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, we're told, in the scriptures. He talked with them. He ate with them. My favorite part of what we're told at the end of the gospel accounts is that Jesus, as he met with people, would open their minds to an even deeper understanding of the scriptures so that they could understand how he had fulfilled all the things that had been anticipated. So that's what happens after the the resurrection until that moment when much to their surprise and ours, I would imagine, Jesus then turns the keys of the kingdom over to us. Jesus is going back from whence he came. Jesus, Lord and now Savior of all creation, is returning to the right hand of his Father in heaven. But before he goes, he deputizes us. During Lent, we reflected on the fact, and we've been actually chewing on this for a while at Grace. Could I have the slides, please? I've been chewing on this for a while. Um... Jesus during his life was continuing to reveal to people what we talk about as the covenant we talked about these twin themes in the Bible. We've talked about them all year, covenant and kingdom. Jesus, one of the primary ways to understand what Jesus does when he comes is to remind us of our true identity, reveal our true identity, our covenant relationship with God. And and the the parts of that, if you haven't heard this before, are that the primary way, the most fundamental way that we are to understand who God is, the number one way that Jesus speaks of God is as our father. That is how we are to envision God, as our father. And as a result of knowing God as our Father, we know ourselves, our identity is, our primary identity, our foundational identity. The most important sense of who we are comes from the fact that we are children of our Heavenly Father. We're not strangers to God. We're not foreigners. We're not even friends. We are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And it's out of the security, the assurance of that, that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father because we are created in His image, because He brought us into existence, because He made us. We're not sons and daughters because of what we do. We're not sons and daughters because of what we don't do. We're sons and daughters simply because we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. It's out of the security and assurance of that identity that we have the ability to live our lives. We are dependent upon that to live our lives. And so obedience is not something oppressive. Obedience is something liberating. Because rather than trying to prove ourselves to establish our identity, to always work to justify our existence, we are living out of the freedom, the assurance of who we are. And so that dependency is something that, we, that, that frees us to be true to ourselves. And Jesus reveals this true identity to break us of all the false identities that come when we try to define ourselves apart from that primary relationship. But Jesus also, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he dies to those false identities, but in being risen from the dead, reveals not only our true identity, but also reveals something that he pointed to and that was the declaration of a kingdom. Jesus came and declared a kingdom. He declares to us that we, not, we need to understand that God is our father, but our father is also king. The king of kings, the king of the universe, the world, the universe belongs to him. And so we are children of a king. And like children of a king, we are representatives of our family, representatives of our king that is our responsibility. We have a relationship through covenant, but a responsibility through the reality of the kingdom. And that responsibility is to represent our father, to represent his reign here on earth. And our father gives us authority. He gives us authority to do that and power to be his representatives. Like I said, this is something we've been at Grace been focusing on for several months, but during Lent, seeing how it all came together in Jesus. But what I find is if we truly understand this idea, these twin themes throughout Scripture of covenant, relationship, kingdom responsibility, most of us tend to get stuck. We get stuck because it's something like this. If you, Maybe this can relate to you. We say to ourselves, okay, I understand and I believe that I am a beloved son or daughter of my heavenly father. I believe and I submit to my kingdom responsibility to represent my father who is also king. But where we get stuck is, how do I, what does that look like? How do I live out of the authority and power that God seeks to exercise in and through me? And what I want to suggest to us this morning is the answer can be found here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, specifically in chapter 4. This is probably the question that we've been coming to. We've been pointing to it, but really wrestling with the answer to, well, how do we have that authority and power that God seeks to work in and through us? How does that happen? And it's here in Ephesians chapter 4. But before I talk about the chapter we heard, we heard read by Adam, let me give us an overview so we understand the context of this letter to the Ephesians. And my way of doing that is to talk to you a little bit about, mm-hmm, no, it's not what I want. I want the black, please. Thank you. Is to talk about how Paul generally writes his letters. If you were ever to study Paul's letters in the New Testament, which I encourage you to do, you will see that they follow a general pattern. Paul may write to different people, but he tends to have the same style in how he writes. The first half of Paul's letters are always reminding people about the gospel why it's good news. Paul will, in different ways throughout his letters, spend the first half reminding people, encouraging them to reflect more deeply on who Jesus is, who Christ is, and to reflect more deeply on the amazing results that he has accomplished for us. And again, and in, in Ephesians, it's no different. The first two chapters, what Paul will do is he will will has this incredible praise at the beginning of the letter that talks about actually the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the whole Godhead. If you want a passage in the Bible that talks about the Trinity, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul recounts how each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, contributes to the salvation that we have received, to this new life that we have. And, and specifically, he continues to come back to the idea that we were dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Christ. That we have been literally recreated by Jesus. And the significance of this recreation is, for Paul, where he just gets caught up in how and fantastic it is, is that the fact that we've been recreated is not just that we can know God our Father even better. Because of this recreation we've experienced in Christ. It's not even that we can, we can become all the things our brother Jesus is. But for Paul, the centerpiece is that because of this recreation that we have in Christ, because of Christ's death and resurrection, through the Holy Spirit, we can find peace. That there's finally an end to the long-standing hostility between Jews and Gentiles, he writes. Between believers and pagans. That before where there was this tremendous separation because of being recreated in Christ, we are now mutual members of God's household. We are now brought together where once we were separated and Paul talks of us becoming the living temple of the Lord. You might remember that when Christ, before he was crucified, perhaps one of the reasons why he was crucified, he spoke of the temple that was in Jerusalem being destroyed and that he would rebuild it in three days. This upset people. They mocked him for it, are gonna rebuild this? And Paul is saying this is what Jesus was pointing to, that the living, everlasting temple is not one made with human hands, but it's the bridging of the hostility between believers and non-believers as we become mutual members of God's household. Now, in all of Paul's letters, the first half is talking about why the gospel is good news, and then he devotes the second half, as you might expect, to then answering the question of, so what? In all of his letters, he, after declaring who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, Paul will then say, given this, if this is true, if the gospel is good news, what does that mean for the church? How should we then respond? And again, Ephesians is no different. As Paul will say, starting with chapter three, that we are called to be living representatives of Christ, of our father's kingdom. He'll go on to say that, that the significance of this, and listen for the covenant and kingdom language in this, is that basically we have to live lives that are consistent with whom God our Father is. We have to know who our Father is so that we can live lives that are consistent with reflecting Him. And we have to know what He's done for us in Christ because otherwise we can't be good witnesses of this good news. But in chapter 3, it, the question is still there, the one we started with. Okay, we understand our covenant identity, who we are in Christ. We understand our kingdom responsibility. We're supposed to represent this good news, the kingdom of our Father. But how does it happen? How does this happen? How, how can this happen? And, and Paul, the very first thing that Paul does in chapter 3, which is a good word for us, is Paul prays for it to happen. And I think it's always important for us to see that Paul is someone who his default place to go is to pray. And there's this beautiful prayer in chapter 3 of this letter where Paul prays that we would attain the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ so that we would grow up into the fullness of Christ in the world. And that's a key theme for this letter, the fullness of Christ in the world. So the answer to how does this happen, how do we live into our covenant identity and out of our kingdom responsibility, Paul begins by praying for it to happen. And then... In chapter 4, which is what we heard read this morning, Paul begins to present what I call the universal truths of the gospel, the seven ones, and, you know, one body, one faith, one spirit, but I actually would encourage you, instead of seeing the the word one, the number one there, think instead, if you have your Bible open, and replace it with the word same, because that actually gets more to the heart of what Paul's getting at. What Paul says is, we are of the same body, the same spirit, the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father of all. What Paul's point is, is that these are the navigational coordinates of the church. When we get disoriented, when we begin to lose our way, when we forget who we are, these are the essentials that hold us together. How do we live out of our covenant identity and our kingdom responsibility? Prayer, but then it has to come out of our unity. We have to build off of our unity in Christ. Nothing can be built. We can't move forward if we're not unified. And Paul says, this is the basis of our unity. These are the things we hold on to. And then, from our unity in Christ, Paul begins to say this is is the ministry of the church. This is how the body grows to maturity. Again, he uses the expression, how the body grows to the fullness of Christ. And what he outlines are five functions or roles. He says, to each one, grace has been given by Christ. Grace has been given. Grace, the Greek word is charisms. You might hear the word charisma in that. And a good translation of that, variously translated grace here is vocation. Ministries, callings To each one, a vocation, a calling A ministry has been given by Christ And these five roles or functions are Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher Now before I talk a little bit more About these five roles or functions I want to stop here Because I want to make an important observation That maybe you've picked up on But maybe you didn't Note Paul's emphasis here. He says, to each one, grace has been given by Christ. In other words, each person, every member in the body of Christ, is a part of these five roles. This is important because oftentimes, lately in the church, we have earmarked these roles for a select few. We have said these are roles for a select few, specifically leaders. But there's nothing here, you will not find it in this letter, there's nothing here to suggest that this is strictly leadership or special people. In fact, by using the phrase to each one, Paul is saying this is the way the entire church was designed to function, not just a chosen few. To go back even further to to support what I'm saying, if you go to the beginning of the letter, Paul writes the letter, chapter 1, to all the saints who are in Ephesus. He doesn't say to all the leaders who are in Ephesus. He doesn't say to all the special people. He says to all the saints who are in Ephesus, the whole church, everyone. Let me underscore it even more. Something else I haven't told you about the letter to the Ephesians. This letter is what's known as a general letter. And what that means is while Paul spent time in Ephesus interacting with the people in the community, being a part of the church there, when he writes them, unlike his letters to the Corinthians, for example, or the Romans, there are no personal greetings. And there there's nothing in this letter specifically contextualized for the Ephesians. And so when we say it's a general letter, what this means is Paul didn't write this letter exclusively for them. Now we can read Paul's letters to the Corinthians and to the Romans even though he wrote exclusively for them. But we always have to be careful because we've got to remember he was writing for them. And how we apply that to us is significant because we're reading someone else's mail. So that's very important because a lot of times we read it and we act like, oh, Paul's talking to us. Be careful. He was talking first to the Corinthian church. And then it's an extent, by extension to us. And you've got to be real specific about where you're drawing that line. But in this letter to the Ephesians, this is a general letter. Paul is writing it, not exclusively for the Ephesians. This letter is intended to have universal significance. It was intended to be passed around and read among all the churches in Asia Minor. And by extension to us, Paul's intention is he's laying out for all members of the church the principles. He wants them to grasp the principles of what it means to know Christ, our identity, our covenant relationship, and how we are to be the body of Christ in the world, our kingdom responsibility. If you get this, if you embrace this, then that means that these five roles, what he outlines here, are crucial to answering our question are crucial to learning how do we live out the calling? How do we live out the great commission that Christ has given all of us? And that's why this chapter, this chapter, chapter four, is gonna be the heart and center of where we're gonna spend the next couple of weeks leading up to Pentecost. We're gonna be unpacking this scripture little by little each week. But let me unpack the, the five roles. And if you have your, the sermon notes, you might wanna write down. I'm just gonna give you a brief understanding of each of these roles, and then we'll, I'll, I'll go on. Apostle. You could put next to apostle the word vision. Apostles are visionary individuals. They're always launching into new territory. They're always initiating the new branches, the new extensions of the ministry. They're the church planters. Apostles, you think the word vision. Then you have prophets. Prophets, put the word listen. Prophets are perceptive individuals. They're perceptive individuals because they make it their focus to listen to what God is revealing and saying, both in specific circumstances and what's happening right now, but also in terms of what will happen in the future, where God is leading his people, what God is doing next. So with prophets, think of the word listen. Evangelists put the word recruit. Evangelists are very, very personable individuals, what I like to call naturally infectious people. They enjoy spending time with others. They enjoy spending time sharing news. And in particular, in this case, sharing the gospel. And they specifically like to share the gospel with non-Christians. These are the kind of people who, thats not just about their words, but they're so excited about what they want to share that it's through the witness and demonstration of their lives as much as what they have to say, that they actually enlist others. They encourage others. They draw others in to follow Jesus, to want to be a part of what they're a part of. So when you think of evangelists, think recruit. For pastors, you could put the word care. These are empathetic individuals who care for, who comfort, who encourage others. These are the shepherds. These are the ones who know the temperature in the room, who can tell how everybody's doing. And they try to cultivate and protect the loving community amongst the people of God. They want to make sure that everyone is heard, everyone's provided for. And then you have your teachers. For teachers, you could put sharing knowledge, sharing knowledge. Teachers can be analytical. They're insightful people who delight in explaining and applying the scriptures for others in a way that they can get it. It's really key. Teachers are not just about knowledge for knowledge's sake, but a teacher loves explaining and applying the scriptures in a way that others can get it. Understand what it means, how it speaks to their lives. These are the five roles. And what I want to do for the rest of today is I want to talk about the implications of this teaching. Because we're going to spend the next couple weeks getting in more detail in each of these roles as we unpack the passage as well. But I want to talk about just the implications of what's right in front of us. Because I'm hoping that for some of us, this is a little bit unsettling. When we look at this, what Paul gives us here... A couple of things observations we can make is that when Paul is talking about the maturity of the body and this is about how the body matures what he's pointing to is that these five roles are things that Jesus was fluent and perfect in I told you the theme of this letter is the fullness of Christ This is the fullness of Christ Christ was the perfect apostle Christ was the perfect prophet Christ was the perfect evangelist Christ was the perfect pastor Christ was the perfect teacher He was the epitome of all of these roles together. And I would actually encourage you, if you reflect on this passage, to think of, in the Gospels, different examples that were given by the Gospel writers of where Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of each of these things, each of these roles. But the implication of realizing that Jesus, the fullness of Christ, is all of these things is that when Paul says to grow into the fullness of Christ, what he means is that all disciples... All disciples are to embrace their calling to these five roles. Again, this is not just for leaders. These roles together represent the normative functioning of the body of Christ. You want a healthy picture of the church? It's these five roles in action. The implications of this are revolutionary, especially in terms of how the church tends to function today. Because... We exist in a, at a time and have for, for, for a while now where we believe that the work of the kingdom, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, is a solo enterprise. No disrespect, and I'm not complaining, but frankly, when I was called, I was basically told that this is my job, that I'm supposed to be these things. This is what we pay you for. So get to it. I mean, but think about that. And again, what we tend to do in the church is we say, well, the pastor is the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher. But we have other people who they would greet people at the door and they'll serve donuts and coffee. I want to thank you for greeting at the door and I want to thank you for serving coffee and donuts, but that is not the work of the kingdom. It's not. It's not the work that Christ has called us to. It's, 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 a, it's a fringe to the deeper reality of what God's called us to. The work of the kingdom, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is not a solo enterprise, whether it's just for pastors or other people we lift up and say, well, these are the leaders in the church. Paul doesn't give us this out here. The work of the kingdom, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is a corporate effort where everyone plays a part, where each person fulfills a role. If you're not getting this, that means that every single person I'm looking at today, you have a part to play. You have a role to fulfill. And it's not just ushering at the door or serving coffee and donuts. It's one of these, it's all of these, as we'll talk about. (laughs) This is a corporate effort that we make to fulfill the Great Commission. But, if you look at this carefully, if you listen to what Paul's saying, he's also underscoring the church is not a corporation. And many of us have existed in a time when we have treated the church primarily as a business. And it's not the business of God, it's the kingdom of God. The church is not a business. There's no hierarchy with these five roles. Paul doesn't say, well, the top one's apostle, second best is prophet, third best is evangelist, fourth best is pastor, and then at the bottom is teacher. These are all equally vital and beneficial together. There's no hierarchy In other words, when we say that the church is a business, we've often existed in places where we've approached the church like a business. We've approached the church like an organization. And even in terms of our leaders, the people that we think should serve in leadership, the people that often get nominated are the professionals, the people who are somebody out in the world because of what they can produce. And as a result, when you try to make the church into a business, this is why the church struggles because it was never intended to be a business or to run according to a business model. The church is not an organization. Paul puts it here and in other places quite clearly. The church is an organism. It's a body. It's not the business of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And what Paul points to us here is that the unity and maturity of the body, the harmony of the body, doesn't result when these five roles exist independently of each other. The harmony, the unity of the body comes when there's an interdependency between them. Let me again contrast a business, an organization from an organism. When we run a business, we all know the key to a good business, a successful business, right? Competition. Competition is what makes your business better. You want to have competition. It pushes you. You want want to have competition outside your business? We want to have competition among departments. The church is not a business. And yet many of us have functioned in churches where it's very much a competition within the church and between churches. We are not an organization that's competitive. We're an organism where it's about being complementarian. Interdependency. Another way to look at this. When we talk about a business or an organization, that's something that we build up. If we were to get together and say, let's create a business, how do we build up our business? How do we make it bigger and better? But when you talk about an organism, when you talk about the body of Christ, we don't build it up. The spirit builds up the organism. The spirit builds up the body. Great example, and you're gonna, this is a little scary, because think about this in terms of the church. You're running a business, what's the number one thing that you have, two things you evaluate to determine the growth, the success of your business? The growth of an organization is measured by numbers. By its size and by its volume. The church isn't an organization, but what are the two things that we pay attention to all the time in the church? How many people are here this morning? How many people got baptized? How many people got saved? How big's our budget? How many programs do we have? We run the body like a business. An organization measures its growth based on size and volume, but the growth of an organism, a church, is evaluated according to Paul by its maturity, not by its mass. This is a cautionary tale in the world in which we live because we live outside of the church but in the church where we think bigger is better. And bigger doesn't mean better. Maturity is not about mass. I realize, stopping for a second, that I'm really pushing some of you this morning. I can tell by some of the looks that are not good. (laughs) That I'm pushing you out of your comfort zone. And I get it. Because what I've just said, what I've let out of the bag, puts you in a very awkward situation. All of us. It's uncomfortable right now because you no longer have permission to come and just be a spectator. The the advantage of the church being a business, the advantage of this being my job or just a couple of select few is you can just show up on Sunday or whatever you want and sit and take it all in. But if that's not right, if that's not the the vision for the church, if that's not the marching orders that Christ gives us, now all of a sudden your seat's not feeling very comfortable. It's getting kind of hot. Because you don't have permission to be a spectator. If you're struggling with this, If you're like, but I like being a spectator. I want to be on the sidelines. Let me ask you this question. I ask this, I've asked this a lot, not corporately, but individually. Do you think it's possible, do we think it's possible that a person can believe in Jesus without actually following Jesus? Can you believe in Jesus without actually following him? I won't pull the room. I hear some murmurings. But when I've asked people individually, more often than not, people will go, yeah, oh, yeah, you can believe in Jesus without following him. But I want us to just take a moment and logically think about that. Logically, you can't say you believe in Jesus and not follow him. Because if you know Jesus, if you've interacted with Jesus in the scriptures, Jesus says, believe me. No, he says, follow me. If you're with me, you're following me. The very word that we use in the church, disciple, means a follower of Christ. So logically, it's not possible to believe in Jesus and not follow him. Because if you believe in everything that Jesus says that he is, who he is, you can't help but follow him. Why would you follow anybody else if this is Lord and Savior of all creation? So logically, it's not possible. But the reason why most people say yes is because functionally, many of us are living this way functionally, many of us are saying, well, I believe in Jesus, but it's totally okay that I'm not following him. (sighs) Do we think that that's possibly the reason why we look around at the body of Christ, not just here at Grace, but around the world? Is this possibly the reason why we look around and the body of Christ is so unhealthy? Is this possibly the reason why the body of Christ, in many respects, seems like it's barely breathing? Many of us get very... you know, fixated on the body of Christ, the church. There was a great article, great is not the best word in the USA Today, right before Easter, that talked about this idea that not just in the Christian community, but in the Jewish community, Christians who believe in Jesus, but weren't going to go to church. They don't believe they need to be a part of the body on Easter. And Jews who believe in the Passover, but didn't necessarily need to go and celebrate it with the community. We live more and more in a world where functionally, we we are telling ourselves we can believe without following But is is that potentially the reason why we're struggling to breathe? And instead, what we tend to do is we tend to point to factors outside of ourselves. We're being persecuted. We're being oppressed. Yeah, we are being persecuted and oppressed, but it's not out there. It's in here. We look around and we know something. We don't like to talk about it. I'm about to say something that you're not supposed to say out loud because it's depressing. We look around, not just grace, but in in most of our churches. The growth in the church that we celebrate today, when we talk about the church growing, you and I both know, at least in the Western world, that the growth that we're experiencing in the church in our own time has less to do with conversion. It has less to do with people, new people coming to Christ, and it has more to do with transfer of membership. We know it. We all know it. And yet we all go, oh, but Rock Harbor's growing. Yeah? Yeah. Isn't it interesting that they're growing where other churches are shrinking? I'm not saying the new people aren't coming to Christ, but I am saying at the same time, let's not kid ourselves that a lot of our growth is not authentic people coming to Christ. It's cannibalism. It is. And maybe the reason that that this is taking place is because we're not wrestling enough with the idea that you can't say you believe in Jesus but not actually follow him. Functionally, this is how we live, and maybe it's the... (laughs) Maybe this is why this happens, because in the same way, we all say we believe in good health. Anyone not believe in good health? Who doesn't believe in good health? We all believe in good health, excellent. But just because we believe in good health, how many of us are actually living healthy? Right, we all believe in it. Greens, yes, rest, stay away from fast food, Mm. that's just healthy. But practically, we don't have healthy habits. Beloved, the starting point of what we're doing right now is realizing that we may be professing faith in Jesus, but we are not living into or out of the grace that Christ has given to each one of us. And what's so significant is that Jesus doesn't just give us a role or a function, Jesus gives us authority. When Jesus leaves us as disciples, when he goes to his father, he gives us the great commission. He commissions us with the responsibility to be, to be witnesses to the new creation he's established. There are, there's new life and new possibilities that emerge from Jesus clearing the ledger of sin and defeating the menace of death. That's what we celebrated last Sunday. I mean, everything's new if those two things are true. And Jesus gives us, he deputizes us to share that good news. If the world has changed, we've got to tell people. But... Contrary to how we function, our testimony is not just about professing our faith. It's not mere lip service. Jesus himself in the Great Commission doesn't say, hey, tell people. He says, go and make disciples. That's significant. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Jesus says his expectation, his command is we need to go and make disciples. We need to teach them. All the things that we have learned from him and continue to learn from him. And teaching others means we have to share what we learn and receive from Jesus. Not just in the past, but in the present. And what this means, to really unpack it for us, is this means if we are to go and make disciples and teach them everything Jesus has taught us and continues to teach us, it means we have to open up our lives to each other. It means that we have to reveal, be willing to be transparent and vulnerable about where Jesus is at work in our lives right now. Not just paying lip service, not just saying I wear a cross, I have a Bible, I go to grace, I'm a Christian. It's pointing specifically in our lives, revealing this is where Jesus is at work in my life. That's teaching others. But it also means that we have to come alongside others. We have to dare to enter into where they live just in the same way that Jesus entered into our world. He entered into all the ugliness, all the mess, all the brutality, was willing to die for it. He didn't say, hey, I'm up here, get to heaven, and I'll show you everything. He came to where we are. And many of us have grown up in this. Some of this is new to you, but we got off course a long time ago as the church because we confused the fact that the culture accepted our faith as meaning people believed and were following Jesus. And what we did is a reflection of what you see now. We built churches and we said, you know how we're going to make disciples? We're going to build really big churches and we're building them even bigger now and we're going to create all kinds of programs because if we meet people's needs, if we give the people what they want, we can get them in the door and then we can give them Jesus. And there's been fruit, but there's also the legacy. Where's the continued fruitfulness? This church alone, We'll talk about its history. The glory days when Grace had three services and you couldn't even find parking. Not anymore. And here's the thing. We we wanted to run the church like a business and look at what's happened. (laughs) People have moved on because they found better deals elsewhere. They found the things we were offering in other places. And guess what? When they left, they didn't take Jesus with them. We have to take an honest look around and say, this isn't working. This isn't who we were called to be. And maybe the reason is, again, because we tried to run it like a business. We'll hire people to do these things. And therefore, we can just watch while they do really good work. Maybe the reason why the church isn't maturing is because we all haven't embraced the grace we've been given in Christ. Jesus gives us authority, but he doesn't just give us authority. Jesus also, with this tremendous responsibility, this authority to make disciples, he gives us incredible power. He promises us power. And Jesus specifically says, this power is given to you so you can be what I expect you to be, so that you can do what I've called you to do. Hear that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, here's what what I'm commissioning you to do. You're in charge. Good luck. Good luck. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power to be and to do what I've called you to do. Because Jesus recognizes in the same way that we came into this family, we can't come into this family by our own merits, by our own efforts. We can't advance or proclaim the kingdom through our own strength and resources. The celebration of resurrection last week anticipates the coming of Pentecost, the arrival and the anointing of the Holy Spirit for those who are in Christ, our empowerment. And there's a parallel to this. Just at the very, as in the very beginning, do you remember the very beginning? God created the first human, Adam, out of the dirt of the earth. Do you ever picture Adam in that moment before what happens next? Just a shell. He does not become living until Christ breathes or until God breathes his spirit into him. And the minute that God breathes his spirit, Adam becomes a human being. In the same way, the new humanity, the body of Christ, does not move and cannot move without the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God. Just as we have been saved by grace, grace is what brought us in, so too we live out our calling as ambassadors of the gospel through this inexhaustible gift of grace. Beloved, what Paul outlines here for me is a proper exercise regimen for the spiritual fitness of the body of Christ. And that's why we're gonna do a little bodybuilding together. We're gonna continue to unpack this chapter in Ephesians over the next couple of weeks, unpacking each of these roles So we truly understand them in their health, in their balance, so that we can also look at scriptural examples and contemporary examples of each. It's going to be a great workout, but we're going to need to ease into this. Because if you've ever had the experience that I've had, if you haven't worked out for a while, and for many of us, this is a big shift. If you haven't worked out for a while, you can all of a sudden go, you know what? Time to get fit. And you can go pump some iron or go run five miles, and you may actually get through it, but the next morning, you can't move. (laughs) So we got to ease into this. So this morning, I know you're already thinking, am I an apostle? Am I a prophet? Am I a teacher? Am I an evangelist? Instead of figuring out what your role is in the life of the body, let me give you one other observation, one last thing, and this is what I want you to chew on. Another way to look at this, to break it down even further, is that in the roles of the church, these five roles, there's two groups that exist in the community of Christ. Pioneers and settlers. Our apostles and our evangelists tend to be pioneers. Prophets can go back and forth. That's why you see it up there. But uh, apostles and evangelists, because they're going out there, tend to be the pioneers. Pioneers enjoy doing new things. Instability does not scare them away. In fact, they're flexible. They look forward to change to whatever comes their way. They're driven to break out from the routine. They want to discover new challenges. They want to go to places that other people aren't going. Pioneers are the trailblazers. They're the ones who plant seeds. And on the other hand, you have your settlers or your developers, and they have a natural preference not for flexibility, but for stability. They want to fine tune the initial structures that are put in place so there can be long-term fruit and success. Your settlers, your developers are your teachers and your pastors, and sometimes your prophets. They like to see things finished well. Your settlers like to see things finished well. They are driven to discover and follow the necessary steps to build upon a foundation. We know all about pioneers and settlers in our own history. Think about the American Old West, right? And and there was a moment when we had to explore our nation. Go west, young man. And it was the pioneers who said, heck yeah, I'll go. I'll go where no one else has been. I'll go where no one knows what's out there. I'm gonna go. And those pioneers were driven to explore a new land. But then we also had settlers or developers who followed behind who said, hey, can we develop the land? Can we actually establish towns? Can we build a presence here? And both were needed in order to expand our nation. There was a healthy tension between pioneers and settlers. They oftentimes are at odds with each other. Go, grow, but there's a healthy tension between them. The point that I'm making, when you, another way to look at these five roles, is that in the same way that we needed pioneers and settlers to found our own nation, within the church, we need that healthy tension between pioneers and settlers. Our passions in the church may be in conflict, but they're both necessary, pioneers and settlers or developers, to make successful disciples of the nations. And in a lot of churches, what we have is one extreme or the other, and I want you to appreciate why we need that healthy tension. On the one hand, if a church is just filled with pioneers, you know what you have? You have a lot of church plants that fizzle out really fast. Lots of new plants new th- or new things that happen, but they quickly dissolve because the pioneers move on. And what starts to happen if you have a church just of pioneers is church divorces actually be called, become church plants. But on the flip side, if you have a church that's just filled with settlers and developers but with no pioneers, you have what many of our churches in America look like today where they're rooted and established, but they're so rooted and established they're not going anywhere. They're caving in. You all know this from traveling. And I'm not talking about grace right now. We're actually on the other side of this. But there are countless numbers of churches just in the western United States that have campuses as big as ours, buildings as big as ours, that can tell you stories about when they had two, three services, and now they have one and they've got 20 or 30 people. That's it. And they know it. But they're not going to do anything different pioneers and settlers those churches where there's just settlers these established churches that we're talking about and it's so painful they gradually splinter apart until they slowly fade out one of the most painful experiences I had as a pastor when I served in Seattle was having to come alongside a congregation that had nine people and having to convince them they needed to close their doors they were going to just keep on going and their campus was as big as this Except every inch of it was rented out to everybody else, a la the business of the church. And from their standpoint, you know what? At any day now, God's going to bring more people in here. It wasn't happening. We need pioneers and settlers in the church. So what I want to leave you with is I want to ask you, and I want you to reflect on this week, are you a pioneer or are you a settler? I want you to reflect on that, and I want you actually to discuss it with people who are closest to you and ask them their opinion of what they think you are. Are you a pioneer? Are you someone who likes to start something new, to launch out into undeveloped territory? Or are you a settler, someone who prefers to grow and develop what exists rather than scrap something together that's new? One small caveat as you think about this and pray about it, are you a pioneer or a settler? Don't simply think the answer to the question in terms of your life here at Grace, because these roles this question is about the work of the kingdom and the work of the kingdom is bigger than this building the work of the kingdom is are you a pioneer or a settler where God has you every day of your life not just what you would like at grace are you a pioneer or a settler St. Bernard of Clairvaux you may not know who that was St. Bernard of Clairvaux once said that Jesus has two bodies His physical body that he gave for us, and his spiritual body, which is the church, the body of Christ. Beloved, we are gathered, we have started here because it is my assertion, my belief, my conviction, that too many of us as Christians are still trying to live in their old bodies. What Paul and other writers call our sinful nature. The new creation means we've been given new bodies. We no longer live in our sinful nature. Paul talks about it like clothes. Don't keep putting on your sinful nature because if you're in Christ, you've been given a new nature, the nature of Christ. And yet, for many of us, the reason why we're spectators, the reason why we don't want to hear about these roles is because we like wearing our sinful nature. But if you let those clothes get taken off of you and let Jesus, the Spirit, start to put on his nature upon you, you will suddenly realize your calling your authority and power to live into it. Last Sunday we celebrated the resurrection of Christ's physical body. Well, I wanna suggest to you this Sunday we start celebrating and calling for the resurrection of Christ's spiritual body. Christ's spiritual body that's been in a deep slumber. Jesus is the head of this organism and he's commissioned us, he's commanded us, he's calling us as members of his body to rise up and to grow to maturity into the fullness of who he is and what he is doing. Beloved, it's time for us to get in shape. It's time for us to exercise the spiritual muscle that Jesus has given us. It's time for the resurrection of the spiritual body of Christ, the church.
0: And I'm here to pump you up.